0: We are talking about the subject of legacy, and I intended that to be one sermon a few weeks ago, and then it turned into two, and then I planned a third one, and I'm still not finished, so it'll have to be another week of this subject, but uh, some very important things I want to say in this regard. So let's, let's look at our text to begin with, and then we'll have a word of prayer. First Kings chapter 12, starting at the first verse, a very interesting passage of Scripture, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. Now this is Solomon's son, Rehoboam. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people... And serve them and give them a favorable answer. They will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders which they gave him. And consulted the young men who had grown up with him. And were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer the people who say to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Father, we pray that your word would come alive to us today. And as we address this subject further of legacy... Let our hearts be open to what you want us to lay hold of here today. In Jesus' name, amen. In this series, we've been defining legacy as um, a body of people sent on a mission. That is the actual definition of the word legacy. We have emphasized to you that legacy is not about leaving material possessions to your children or to someone else, but legacy is about living our lives in such a way that the generations that we leave behind us are influenced for good. And we've been examining the requirements of leaving a godly legacy. So far we've discussed the necessity of a good theology, we talked about that last week, and also the need for good parenting that is so critical to leave a legacy. Today I want to discuss the the synergy of the generations because without the synergy of the generations, there will be no legacy. In 1754, a long time ago, a young British officer who was in his mid-twenties was sent with a small detachment of troops into the wilderness of southwestern Pennsylvania. Their mission was to check on a, a French-Canadian force that had been active in the area Around uh, modern day Uniontown, PA, just south and east of here. The young officer connected with some Native Americans who provided the scouting that was needed. These Mingo warriors that he connected with located an encampment of French under the leadership of Colonel Jumonville. Actually, the French would have said Jumonville, but anyway, Jumonville, we say here. The young British officer and his troops surrounded those French forces, shots were fired, and the French and Indian War commenced. That little skirmish there was a very short-lived show of dominance on the part of this young British officer. In fact, he went and built a fort quite quickly because he feared the reprisal of the French, and he named that little makeshift fort Fort Necessity. The French forces, as he predicted, soon marched on that little fort and forced their surrender. But during that harrowing time for this young officer, he learned valuable lessons in his time in the wilderness. He learned tactics that would prove effective later on. One year later, 1755, the British sent a veteran officer, he had been 50 years in the service of the British army, His name was George Braddock. And he was assigned over all of the forces on the continent here. And uh, his job was to drive the French forces out of the colonies. Braddock took a liking to the young officer who had the experience in the wilderness. And he decided to take him on his next major mission. And so his mission went to the forks of the Ohio River. um, They started in in Cumberland, Maryland, and their goal was to get to the forks of the Ohio River, which is where Point State Park is right now in downtown Pittsburgh, and drive the French out of the fort that they had built, which was called Fort Duquesne. And so he took this young officer with him and decided that um, they were going to get this job done because this was such a critical stronghold out here in what is now Pittsburgh. And so they they had to build a road all the way from Cumberland, Maryland. They thought it was going to be 80 miles. It turned out to be 120 miles. And they used old Indian paths and they cut the road wider so they could get their wagons and cannon through. They had to hire specialists who were wagon masters. One of the young wagon masters they hired was none other than Daniel Boone himself, who later became quite famous. Benjamin Franklin was part of the story as well. Franklin had spent some time with Major General Braddock, and during that time, Franklin expressed concerns of the dangers of the wilderness due to the the natives setting up ambushes and using very unconventional battle tactics, as you can imagine. Braddock was a veteran of European-style warfare, where they would stand in lines and fire on the forces, But Braddock simply smiled at the ignorance of Ben Franklin. And this is what Franklin records that he said. I quote, These savages, says Braddock, may indeed be a formidable enemy to your raw American militia. But upon the king's regular and disciplined troops, sir, it is impossible that they should make any impression. End quote. Well, our young British officer, who was respected by General Braddock, shared what he had learned with General Braddock from his wilderness experiences. And he warned Braddock that the tactics that worked on the traditional European battlefields would not be effective in the wilderness. And though Braddock liked the young officer, he ignored his advice. And as the young officer feared, an ambush was set up by the French when they were about 10 miles from Fort Duquesne after they had crossed the Monongahela River at one point. And they tried their conventional warfare tactics and their forces crumbled. Braddock was mortally wounded and was helped off the battlefield by the young British officer who organized a retreat and is responsible for saving them from the total annihilation from the the French and Indian forces. Four days later General Braddock died And was buried on the very road that he had carved out of the wilderness. The young officer left the battlefield with 12 bullet holes in his clothing. 12 bullet holes. Yet he was not wounded. And he gained even more experience from this defeat. Experience that he would later employ when America finally revolted against the British Empire. The young officer, I'm sure you realize, was George Washington. And what had caused Braddock's defeat as the battle became known, a terrible name for a battle if you're Braddock, Braddock's defeat, or the Battle of Monongahela, it's sometimes called. What caused it? What happened that that brought that tragedy there? There are numerous factors, but really it can be boiled down into one factor. There was a lack of generational synergy. The older people, older than Braddock, tried to tell him. The younger people tried to tell him. But he didn't listen to their advice. I wonder how many of you could look back through the story of your lives and say, you suffered some because you didn't synergize with your parents? Anybody relate to that? There's some things that mom and dad told you that had you listened, you might have been a little bit better off in life. And older people, are there some things that the younger generation maybe told you that might have helped you in life that you didn't listen to? When it comes to generations, God speaks in both directions. Both to the older and to the younger. Has it occurred to you that God designed this life, this existence that we have here on this earth, he designed it for several generations to be on the planet at the same time? And we can learn from the older and we can learn from the younger. And if you are wise, your ears will be open in both directions. It's very critical that we are open. Now synergy, as I've defined, I think, in my first message, synergy is the interaction of elements that when combined produce a total effect that is greater than the sum of the individual elements or contributions. In other words, each generation that's alive on the earth right now has something to contribute. But when we contribute our part and The other generations contribute their part. There is a synergy that causes the wisdom, the collective wisdom, to be greater than what we could have if we just had our own little individual pockets and lived in them generationally. That there is a multiplication that takes place when you listen to the younger and to the older generations. Generations that interact will produce a total effect That is greater than the sum of our individual generations. That's just the way it works. Now the text that I read you today comes from a a somewhat complex passage of scripture. If you read the chapters around it there in 1 Kings. There are a number of strange nuances in the story. There are prophets interacting with the characters with strange prophetic lessons, and I don't have the time to, to get into all of those strange passages because, as I said, the story just kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit. The bottom line is in the story that God in His sovereignty was bringing judgment against the nation of Israel that was going to result in the kingdom being divided. It is a story of the transition of leadership, the passing of the baton from one generation to the next, It is the story of the colossal failure of two generations. The failure to make a heart connection and the results of their blunder would be felt for centuries. The story is set at the end of Solomon's life. Solomon, the son of King David. He is a very complex character. And when he, while he brought Israel to what many consider to be the pinnacle of her greatness with the building of the temple, his personal life was anything but successful from the character-building stand point of view. Scripture says that, that he loved many strange women, and he married many of them for the sake of political alliances. He ended up with an incredible seven wives. He had 300 concubines, and that's a pretty good definition of going off the deep end. Really. I mean, can you imagine the communication problems in that household? <laughs> Think about it. Can you imagine what an undertaking it would be to spend quality time with your wife, or wives in this case? 700 of them. And even if it boiled down to communicating with your favorite 12 wives, you would have your hands full. I mean, it's crazy. But there is a a paradox here in that Solomon is known for his wisdom, right? When we think of Solomon, we think of the wisdom of Solomon. I mean, people came from all over to ask questions of him. He would have been the Jeopardy champion. And he would have never been dethroned from it. He would have been on season after season beating everyone. And he was was smart enough to appoint counselors and advisors to have people around him. And it would be certainly a prestigious position to be on the counseling staff of the wisest man in the world. Can you imagine that? The time came though that, that King Solomon died. And when he did... His son Rehoboam took the throne of the twelve tribes of Israel. They had become a, a sizable military and economic power in the Middle East, rivaled by none. Rehoboam had a powerful people at his disposal, and the sky was the limit for their influence. But there's another character in the story whose name is Jeroboam. He once worked for Solomon, but their relationship had broken down. And fearing for his life, Jeroboam ran from Solomon and he ran to Egypt and uh, fled for his life there. When he learned that Solomon had died and Rehoboam had been made king, he came to Israel to meet with a new king. The, The name Jeroboam means the people will contend. The people will contend. That's his name. And that was his mission, to bring about this contention among the people. Jeroboam had, had been opposed to the heavy taxation that Solomon had put upon his people. And while I'm sure that it was less tax than we pay today, it was, it was still a hefty portion of their labor. And Jeroboam made an appeal to this new king, to Rehoboam, and he said, your father put a heavy load on us now, lighten the load. Take the labor load, the tax load off of us. Give us a break. And if you do, we'll serve you. We'll get behind you. We'll support you as king. Notice that no one on either side was critical of the idolatrous worship that was going on. I mean, there was idol worship. The god Molech was being worshipped. Terrible things were happening. All kinds of false gods. But it was all about economics. And we would do well to learn from this. Lower taxes are great, but if we don't get to the core issues of our nation's idolatry, we will not see lasting transformation. Our nation's only hope is a move of God. I will say that. It is our only hope. Now, Rehoboam wasn't ready to answer right away. I don't know why he felt pressure. He wanted to take some time to think about it. So he said, give me three days to think about this and then come back. And during those three days, we see a total disregard of the older generation. Remember, these were the the counselors of Solomon that Rehoboam went to. The counselors of the wisest man in the world. And if you're a counselor of the wisest man in the world, you should have some degree of wisdom to share. The older generation advised Rehoboam, To ease up on the taxes. They said if you'll ease up on the taxes. You will enjoy the loyalty of Jeroboam and all the people. And the scripture tells us that Rehoboam flatly rejected their advice. Even before he went to others for advice. He rejected the counsel of the elders. He had his mind made up in other words. He had his mind made up. Then he asked the counsel of the young men that he'd grown up with in his own generation. And they were tough. Tell these people who have said to you, your daddy put a heavy yoke on us. You tell them, my finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. They were not insects, by the way. It was a certain kind of whip that was used to, to inflict more damage on the body than a standard whip. In other words, the younger generation was saying, you morons. Rehoboam was saying... If you think my daddy was tough, wait till you see what I do to you. They pressed him to have an oppressive control on the people. Now young people, please learn this lesson well. And in a few minutes, I'll pick on the old people and straighten them out. Okay? I have just one point for you and four for them. So listen closely. The older generation has something to say, listen closely. Life has taught them some things. So tune in. Maybe their methodology is outdated, but listen for principles that will help you. Listen to the stories of their experiences. They may seem outdated, but there are certain Principles in life that don't change with generations. You need to know that. It's very critical. The stage that, that they are acting out on may be different, but the life principles do not change. You know, when God inspired the writing of His Word, He filled it with stories. I'm telling you one of them right now. Old stories that are, that would be about 3,000 years ago. This story. Old stories that God filled the Bible with. And the truths are just as alive and relevant as they were way back then, aren't they? That's why we still read the Bible and we, we gain wisdom from it. It's an incredible book inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if we, if we follow these simple lessons in Scripture and apply them to our lives, we will be saved lots of grief. The older generation has something to say Listen intently. Don't tolerate what they say. Listen and discern what they say. Throw out the bad and keep the good. It could save you lots of grief. Now, Rehoboam's rash decision caused the splitting of an empire. If you know your Bible history, you know that from this point on in history, they were taken captive by the Babylonians, Uh, until the time they became captive to the Babylonians, which was several hundred years. They were in a mess. The nation was divided into two, Judah and Israel. The tribe of Judah, which was Rehoboam's tribe, the kingly tribe, the tribe of Judah allied with the tribe of Benjamin, and they were known simply as the kingdom of Judah. Their capital city was Jerusalem. The ten tribes to the north under the leadership of Jeroboam, who actually led that force later, had their own capital city, and that capital city was Samaria. And at times the northern and the southern tribes fought against one another. The nation that was formed for the purpose of birthing the Messiah and of being a light to the nations was characterized by strife, and at times Even civil war. Israel existed to bring the Messiah into the earth and to be a light to the Gentiles. If you study the Bible, you'll see that was God's intention. It was not a Jewish faith alone. God wanted the Gentiles included. And when Jesus reminded the Pharisees of that, they were furious with him. He did it in a lot of his teaching and offended them. He was reminding them of their purpose as a nation to be a light. To the Gentiles. But hundreds of years of strife and civil war go on. The northern tribes that started with Jeroboam never produced a godly king. Not a single one. They were all wicked idolaters. Most of Judah's kings were ungodly with a few exceptions. We have Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah, arguably Amaziah and Uzziah might make the list, but the rest were idolaters, and all of them, even the good ones, seem to have had their moments of weakness and failure, where they kind of allowed the idolatry to come back in, or they turned from God in some respect. So the lesson learned from Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the lesson that carries on to Braddock and Washington, and to the people of our day, is that no single generation is designed to have the complete picture. God designed humanity in such a way that the generations overlap. There's a critical passage in Acts 17 and verse 24. It says, the God, Paul is talking to the uh, Athenians here, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if He needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For from one man, he's talking about Adam, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now listen to the next verse. And God determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. This is you as well. God determined the time you would be on this planet And the exact place where you should live. Why? He says God did this so that men would seek Him. And perhaps reach out for Him and find Him. Though He is not far from each one of us. God designed you for a specific time and place in history. You are not living in this community at this time of history as an accident. And His purpose would be... That we would seek Him, reach out for Him, and find Him. And one of the ways that God chooses to reveal Himself is in the people who are around us, who are also here at this time and place in history by God's design. God wants to use the people that are around you. God designed my generation long before we were called baby boomers. And there is value in what each generation has to offer. When I speak to older people, I am all ears. My, my parents taught me to respect my elders, and I never forgot that lesson. They, they, they really put that in me, and they modeled it as well to me. And I am currently learning from the millennials and the Gen Xers and from my fellow baby boomers. The Gen Zers, these little babies that are being born speak into my life all the time, really. When I see my grandkids, they contribute to me. Usually it's just the the joy and the blessing of being with them. But there are life lessons that I learn from watching them. I learn from their good deeds and from their orneriness. All the generations are speaking to us constantly. We need to listen. We are surrounded with multi-generational teachers in everyday life. And we only need to listen to what God is teaching us through them. Learn to listen intently. You are never too old or too wise to learn something. I remember years ago when a young teenager came to me for some counsel. And I talked with him about his issues, but while he was talking, he said some things to me that were profound that I needed to hear. And I remember learning that. That was many, many years ago. Learning that lesson, I was dumbfounded by what came through his mouth to me, and he didn't, he wasn't even intentional about it. it was just something he said off the cuff, and it hit me, and I learned that I need to listen. You've got two ears, one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk. Learn to listen Don't close your ears to someone through whom God might have something to say. And we've seen how the younger generations are tempted to neglect the wisdom of the elders. And I want to address the problematic tendencies of the elders, the older generation, toward the younger. And I'm asking the younger generation To listen very closely. Because these tendencies of the older toward the younger. You will face them one day. Sooner than you think. Life goes by very quickly. And you will soon be in the seat of the old people. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't take long. So this is what happened. These are the things that we wrestle with as an older generation. The first one is pride. Pride says, I know better than you we need to be careful, and I'm appealing to the older generation here, to be careful because pride causes us to act like we know better just because we're older. (laughs) There are plenty of wise older people who can counsel you. But there might just be some older people you want to run from. Years don't necessarily add up to wisdom and knowledge. And nothing turns off the younger generation than a know-it-all. Many years ago, an elderly gentleman wanted to meet with me. And I arrived at his house and was very open. I had a very open, teachable mind. And he then began to talk down to me in a very condescending way about me and my ministry and about the church. And he started to tell me how to pastor a church and gave me some very specific methodology of things that, that I should be doing. And I listened in, you know, intently to him, but in my mind... In my thoughts, the man had a credibility problem. He really did. He had been a person, had he been a person with experience, his words would have had some credibility. But he did not attend church for most of his life. He had only attended our church for a brief period of time. He never pastored a day in his life. And I was supposed to learn from him because he was older and wiser. And when he was finished, Lecturing me, I felt like I needed a spiritual shower, like he dumped dirt on me or something. Older people, stop parenting those who are younger unless they ask you to. Wendy and I raised our kids, but when they got married off, we tried our best to stop parenting them unless they asked for advice. It's not always easy. We haven't done it perfectly, but we we endeavor to treat our kids as adults, not toddlers. The goal in raising your children is to raise them to the point of maturity where they are your friends. You don't want that role of mom and dad for the rest of your life. You want to be friends with your kids. You want to be kind of equal, on equal terms as adults. Yeah, they'll always respect you as mom and dad. There's something about that parent-child relationship that never leaves. But the goal is to get them to a place of maturity where you can relate to them as adults and as friends. And it's a challenge. The right to be heard is earned. The right to be heard is not merited by our age. And if we walk in humility before those who are younger, not only will we earn the right to share with them, but we won't have to push our opinions on them. They'll ask for it. And we just might learn something from them in the meantime. I've so appreciated my pastor who led me to Christ. Over the years, when I would get an opportunity to sit down with him and talk, the very first thing he says after we exchange greetings over a cup of coffee, he says, Craig, what's the Lord teaching you these days? And he puts himself in the position always of a learner. And he genuinely listens. What he's been preaching on. What's God been saying lately. And he genuinely listens. And you know what? That approach makes me want to ask his counsel. Because what I say matters to him as well. We reap what we sow in generational relationships. Learn to listen and you will be listened to. Walk the walk and people will ask you to help teach them how to walk. So pride is... A big thing here. The second thing is fear. Fear says that you will look bad as a young person if you don't do it my way. You have a fear in you. Now, this is closely tied to pride in that the only reason the older doesn't want the younger to look bad is because it makes him look bad or her look bad. And parents of of teenagers sometimes live with this kind of fear. When our kids act up and go through stages we fear what we will look like. It happens to us when you have teenagers. If you're not there yet, you will be tempted in this area. We're afraid of what we will like, will end up looking like. And we say, oh God, they're going to end up being serial killers or terrorists or something, you know. And <laughs> you know, there are times as parents when, when we're, we're tempted to be more concerned about our reputation than we are about our children. And you can't connect. With the younger generation, if they don't think you believe in them, stop fretting over them. Stop fearing about them and trust God. That trust in God and in God in them will open doors for you to genuinely impart something that they need to get them through the challenges of moving into adulthood. Pride, fear, thirdly, control. Control says, I'm going to make sure you do it right. Now this is what we do. We carry this kind of, there's a healthy control as a parent, but there comes a time when that control has to be released and they have to be allowed to make decisions. And some parents get controlling. And it it just happens so quickly. And we take actions to make sure that that child or that person that person in the younger generation lives according to our expectations. Pastors do this with some of the young people in their congregation. They try to control them. I I tell people all the time, I I got enough mess in my own life to deal with. I don't need to be controlling your life. (laughs) I got enough to deal with, with me. If you want some advice, great, but I'm not responsible for your decisions. I want you to make good ones, but I can't control that. And control doesn't always express itself in the manipulation of life circumstances. We can control by correcting them incessantly. We can control by humiliating them. We can control by our silent disapproval or even our withdrawal from them. We tend to think that control is always an overt thing, but most control is done quite passively, quite quietly. When we just withdraw. So control is something we've got to watch out for. Let them make decisions. And if they make the wrong ones. Be there to help them make their way back. The fourth and final one is jealousy. We have to avoid the temptation. This seems odd. But as the older generation avoid the temptation to jealousy. Your success will diminish my success. And sometimes older generations do that. I've seen older folk become jealous of the younger generation. Jealous of their successes. Jealous of their resources. Of their energy. Whatever. Do you remember the insanely jealous king named Saul? He was so jealous of David. He was the head honcho. He was the king. He had all the power and the authority of the kingdom. But when he heard the women singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, he couldn't handle it. And he actually tried to kill David and stop his destiny. And jealousy is perhaps the most evil of all of these traits of the older generation. I mean, what could possibly be wrong with our kids doing better than we did? What could be wrong with that? Yet, jealousy plagues the older generation from time to time. The success of the younger generation is no threat to us. As the kingdom advances, they should accomplish greater things than we do. That is the nature of the kingdom. to become greater and greater with every generation. If I have slain my thousands, I expect the next generation to slay their ten thousands. That's the way it should be. You know, I love stories that deal with generations, and I'll close with this. I was talking to Dr. John Stalwart on Friday. He told me a story of one church in New York City that is a generational story, and I got on their website and looked it up and read about it. In 1933, God called a contractor by the name of uh, E.S. Williams into the ministry. He had a wife and seven children, and they started with street meetings in Queens, New York. And then they planted and pastored a church there in Queens. And there in the church, this, this elderly man became an elderly man, and he labored for 32 years. And that church made an incredible difference in the lives of many people, but it never grew large. It stayed like the average, never more than 150 people, I think I recall. In 1965, E.S. Williams went back on the mission field in Haiti. He died a year later. But he turned the church in the meantime over to his grandson, Bob Johanson, who was called of God to pastor that church. And his grandfather had spent many, many years sowing and foundation building. And now, under his grandson, after 32 years of ministry in that relatively small church, the church exploded. And today they're making an incredible difference in the New York area. Pastor Johansen is keenly aware that, he enjo- what, that what he enjoys at Evangel Church has been due to the foundation that was laid by his grandfather. He could only do what he is doing because of what his grandfather did. Foundations are extremely important. A foundation will only, a building will only be as strong as its foundation. And foundations are not pretty. Do you ever build a house? Do you ever have somebody come by and say, what a beautiful foundation. It's it's ugly, really. There's a bunch of dirt and mud around usually. Usually. And there's rebar sticking up out of concrete and this old yucky gray concrete sticking down there in the mud. But it's absolutely necessary. The building will not be great unless the foundation is great. Every generation gets to build on the foundations of the former one. And every generation gets to expand the building project By laying additional foundations for those who will follow them to build upon. Psalm 71 and verse 18. I love this verse. Just found it yesterday. It jumped out at me. Psalm 71, 18. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, until I declare your power to the next generation. Your might to all who are to come. Wow. Stay with me, Lord, until I fulfill my purpose of declaring your power to the next generation and your might to all who are yet to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible wisdom that you had when you created us and designed life on this planet to be lived with multiple generations overlapping. Thank you that you have that kind of care for us that we can learn from the older and from the younger. And so we just accept our responsibility to follow the guidelines of your word Closely, accurately. We want to make a difference in our world, but we want to also leave an inheritance, a legacy of people who can build on the foundation that we lay. And so we humble ourselves before you. Lord, as younger generations, we cry out to you. And we accept the responsibility to listen to the older generations. To listen to what they're saying. And give us keen discernment to know, to sort out those things. And to know exactly what you're saying to us in the midst of what they're sharing. But God let us be open. tear down the generational barriers that exist between the younger and the older. And as the older generation, we resist pride, and we resist fear, we resist control, we resist jealousy, those things that would hold us back from really being the blessing that you want us to be in the younger generations. Together as a body, we repent of all of our ungodliness in those areas And we choose to embrace the generations that surround us by your design. If indeed you placed us here at this time and place, you placed us in the midst of generations that are meant to touch our lives and to impact us. And so we welcome, we welcome the input, encouragement, the counsel, the correction, the stability that can come as we share our lives With one another. And so for that we praise you. We honor you. Make this church a multi-generational church. Not just in the people who fill the seats. But multi-generational in the sense that we really care for one another. And we really give ourselves to one another. in Sharing the wisdom and the counsel of life. Bless this people as we go into the mission field of life, into the areas where we live. Help us to be people who make an incredible difference in the lives of others. And so we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.